I have the great privilege of talking to and learning from smart and creative and wildly interesting and inspirational people every day. And I want you to have that same experience. And so I decided to start interviewing them. And I want you to come along and listen and learn and enjoy with me. I'm your host, Phil Luce, and this is the Sample Bucket Podcast, where we learn all kinds of different things about people who own, operate, manage, and otherwise work in grain businesses. I was just incredibly fortunate and blessed to have a number of mentors in my life, parents, grandparents, and neighbors that were relationship people. And by virtue of just spending time with these people, I, I learned the importance of just building relationships with people. My guest on this episode is Evan Erlinson. I met Evan a few years ago when he became part of the White Commercial family of customers. Uh, he's the founder of a couple of businesses up in southern Manitoba. He is the husband of one, father of six. He's an eager seeker out of relationships and education, always looking to grow. And, and maybe the thing that stands out most to me among many things about Evan is that he is one of those people who genuinely is interested in other people. And when you're talking to him, you, you feel as if he values you. So enjoy. All right, Evan Erlinson, welcome. Thank you, Phil. I've been uh, looking forward to this. Oh, me too. It's actually, I was thinking just before we got on here, it's been quite a while relative to my other interviews. This one uh, took quite a while to develop based on some of your scheduling, some of mine and, and so on. But anyway, here we are. Yep. I think uh, me looking forward to it is a nice way of saying that the, the nerves felt this one coming on and that's uh, not normal for me, but I don't know this one. This is a new one for me. I've never done something like this. Well, if it makes you feel any better, this is my, I think, I think this is my fifth one. So we're both pretty much, we're both pretty much in our infancy as podcasts go. All right. Well, we're in this together. Yes, <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. Let's talk about geography a little bit. You are in uh, what, what apparently, at least in 2023, is the land of eternal winter. But anyhow, <laughs> yeah. uh, just um, southern Manitoba, right? Tell, tell us a little bit right. about that. That's right. Uh, southern Manitoba. So uh, Red River Grain sits on Road 9 north. We're nine miles north of the uh, Manitoba North Dakota border or the Canadian American border. Um, so we can just about throw a rock and hit a hit a North Dakota uh, citizen. And we're uh, about 10, 12 miles west of the Red River. So we're right in the, pretty much in the middle of the Red River Valley and uh, sit on some fertile, very flat, very black ground. And uh, in my opinion, it's an excellent place to be. <laughs> Fair to say, especially again in March 2023, opinions may vary slightly on on whether how excellent it is to be there. But well, I'm glad you're there. We need somebody there handling those crops. That's right. I, I there's probably I'm the sixth generation in my family to be in Southern Manitoba. The the first generation settled on road one north of the border and I live on road 11. So we're not, we're not going anywhere fast. We've gone 10 miles <laughs> in six generations and we're going north. So you could argue the sanity of that too, but 
there's there's something genetic about it that uh, probably implores me to say that I think it's a really good place to be. But I do. It's uh, I've had options to be elsewhere, and uh, I've gone elsewhere, and I'm always thankful to to come home. Uh, it's it's a bit of a land of extremes. Uh, heat, well, heat in the summer. You know, we'll get ninety degrees. And cold in the winter, we'll get 40 below. And uh, there's usually a wind associated with both. And we'll get our fair share of snow and rain and floods and uh, mosquitoes. But uh, <laughs> I'm not much of a salesman on my part <laughs> of the neck of the country here, but it's... Uh, a beautiful place once you're used to the prairies and the open space and the people that are here and like i say i i wouldn't trade it for anything i'll say if, if you're any indicator of the people then i i couldn't agree with you more i'm curious uh Thanks, you, you gave me um you gave me temperatures in fahrenheit and i, I want to know if that's just a, a courtesy to me or are you close enough to the north dakota border that that you can easily flip back and forth or, or what's the deal there? Um, yeah, that's, I did, didn't I? You know, I, I am, I would say I'm, I'm bilingual. You know what? I'm trilingual. If we're talking the grain business, because you've got, you've got Western Canada, you've got the Midwest, you know, when I say the Midwest, those are Americans. And then you've got the Ontario crowd and we all kind of speak a little bit of a different language when it comes to certain things or we say things a little differently certain words will say them differently obviously we've got different systems on either side of the border but i'm probably not unique in that in that most people in southern manitoba well probably in my generation i might be a little bit my generation is not going to switch especially with temperatures um but you you know like my parents or grandparents grandparents you know they they grew up talking fahrenheit and then switched to celsius somewhere in there and so they could speak both and i'd say you know somebody 60 years old or or north of that is going to be able to speak both and and a lot of people along the border here you know like we've got a radio station or two that broadcasts on both sides of the border so you know when they switch to weather which i mean we're an agricultural community, so there's weather every 15 minutes. You're hearing them in both Celsius and Fahrenheit, so you kind of pick up on those things. But I think I'm I, I'm probably maybe a little bit more bilingual tri, or trilingual than than most people. But yeah, I can speak both languages. I was in general, of course. Well, maybe maybe North Dakotans are good at that. Uh, in general, Americans are not great, especially down here where I live. But I, I was, I can't remember who I was with, but I was with somebody uh, last week in a hotel room, I think, or sometime in the last couple of weeks, and their thermostat was locked on on Celsius. It was it was quite an adventure trying to understand what number it should be. <laughs> <laughs> to be comfortable and it was uncomfortable but it was it was hard to know what number to make it to be comfortable of course fortunately google's never far away to figure that that's stuff. right that's right but your that. observation is right about americans they tend to be very american and 
Yeah. I am an American, so I can say that and not get in too much trouble. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. You you have, uh, despite six generations in Manitoba, you do have a, a international heritage. Tell me more about that. Yeah, that's right. My uh, So the, the six generations in Manitoba is on my mother's side. Uh, you know, that's the Schmidt line. Um, uh, Mennonites that came here from, well, it was Russia at the time, but uh, it's now the southern part of, U- of Ukraine. And uh, I'm thankful they came when they did. Uh, Certainly. The way things are now. Um, but yeah, they came here and uh, the 1870s and so yeah since since those folks I would be the sixth generation in southern Manitoba but on my dad's side the Erlinson side um, that, it's actually interesting I, I don't know a lot about the history on that side but uh, I think some of the dates are are quite similar 1870s ish that um, a few uh, Norwegians landed in Minnesota and they hung around there with a couple uh, escapades into North Dakota and, and Montana, but always kept coming back to Minnesota. So yeah, my dad uh, grew up in Lowry, Minnesota, home of Lowry Manufacturing. For some people in the grain business, they'll be familiar with that uh, company, but that's a town of, I don't know, maybe 250 people today and uh yeah so that's that's where my dad's from uh dad went to school in crookston minnesota and as he told me uh i think the first weekend he knew that uh, if he went back home he probably wouldn't come back to school and he knew of uh some family friends up on our side of the border here and so he came up this way and uh there was a pretty girl there too so the rest is history, but I was uh, I was born in Minnesota, in uh, Alexandria, and uh, but I was ten months old when mom and dad moved to Manitoba, and so uh, this Manitoba's home for me. But uh, I do have still a bunch of relatives in Minnesota, and and we get back there and and appreciate the place. But uh, that's kind of how I come by that. Uh, heritage do you have dual citizenship or are you or Canadian i do citizen? yeah i do have dual citizenship um yeah two passports does that thing i assume that makes things easier for you is there any way in which it makes it more complicated uh yeah that would be an incorrect assumption actually um it uh it does make things more complicated uh from a tax perspective mm. uncle sam is uh pretty possessive about uh, <laughs> those sorts of things and yep. uh yeah following the rules and and uh keeping everything happy or keeping everyone happy uh i pay accountants a lot more than i wish i had to but it's yeah it's part of the process and it it's a it's a pain but at the same time i, I get it um from uncle sam's perspective so it's it it is a pain but it's also uh something i've taken for granted and you know i i'm able to work on either side of the border and and you know i used that once and i'm glad i had the opportunity and the experience but um 
for me personally, it really hasn't done a whole lot, you know, having my U.S. citizenship, but it has created, uh, I would say, some headaches on an annual basis. I'd say I, I've only lived under this one government, but I think it's a truism that governments in general love their taxes. Yeah, <laughs> probably try, try pretty. And that's hard. not going to change. No, I, I wouldn't expect. I wouldn't expect at all that it would. No, wouldn't expect at all. So, um, what about your your path to the grain business? I, you correct me if I'm wrong. I believe as of this conversation, you are the owner of Red River Grain. Is that accurate to say? That's uh, well. In one month, that will be accurate. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, I, my path to the grain business is, yeah. you know, I think that goes back to uh, that goes back to childhood, really, and and it's not in the traditional sense. None of my family was in the grain business. Well, I guess an uncle that worked for Cargill back in the day, but not. You know, it's not that I grew up in the grain business, but I grew up um, with a few mentors. I mean, we all have mentors, but I was just incredibly fortunate and blessed to have a number of mentors in my life, uh, parents, grandparents, and neighbors that were relationship people. and had all the time in the world for me and my interests and um, just cultivating a curious personality. And by virtue of just spending time with these people, I, I learned, you know, looking back now at the time, I had no idea I was learning this, but looking back, I, I realized I learned the importance of, just building relationships with people and, and finding things in common and then and then growing up in an agricultural community and, and around a farm. My grandpa farmed and I loved the farm and it was a mixed farm. So I had exposure to a little bit of everything. But I think I just, I, uh, that was my world. And so those, that's where my interests lay. And then I was surrounded by these people that that valued people and relationships. And uh, then you just build on that. So I think that's served me well um, as I navigated university. And, you know, my first kind of real job was in a canola crushing plant here locally for Bungie and uh, started in the plant. And a couple months later, a guy in the grain office uh, retired and and I I knew from a couple of courses that I had taken in university that I had a this whole markets business was kind of interesting to me and and you know world ag policy and that sort of thing it was it was interesting to me so I I applied for the job in the grain office and uh, yeah I spent a couple months in the plant learning, you know, just uh, kind of basically how that plant worked. And then I found myself in the grain office and dealing with farmers and buying canola for Bungie. And, and I loved it. And that was kind of where it all started. But I think it really goes back to just the people that were around me and, mm -hmm. and the, the, the type of people they were. And, you know, the, 
the grandparents were gone by the time I was, uh, well, by the time I hit 30, they were both gone. So I'm thankful for that, for the influence that they were and, and really just valuing people and the way that you deal with people and the relationships and, and just the details of, of life in a small town. Yeah. How did you move from Bungie to Red River Grain or was there something in between? Um, yeah, there was. I spent roughly five years with Bungie, just short of five years. And, uh, you know, I had the had the big company exposure there and learned a bunch of things. And um, it was a very good, very good experience. Um, you know, they tried to, you know, move me around and and uh i remember i remember that the you know the canadian uh procurement manager coming out and, and i still have a relationship with him to this day but i remember him coming out to altona and and uh him and i went for a drive and and looking back that was his uh i think his opportunity to have a little chat with me to say hey you know and I remember him saying, you know, there's a log jam of people my age, but we need some young people to, you know, move around and get some experience and fill some of these roles. And and um, he's telling me this as we're driving past, you know, the quarter section that I own and and then the yard just off the quarter section. And, you know, we have not, we don't have anything fancy for a place, but I was just, well, here's, here's where I live and and uh, I could tell right away that he recognized uh, this was home for me and the roots were pretty deep. And, um, you know, he, <laughs> he knew I wasn't going to go anywhere. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. And, uh, and, but we looked at it and it just, we, it just didn't make sense for us to move given the, the you know, the position we were in, which was, a, you know, no, nothing special. They're, like I say, the roots were deep. And um, whereas for the next person, it might have made sense for them to do it and, and they should do it. There's nothing wrong with doing those things. But for me, it didn't. And so then I think once I realized, you know, um, I wasn't going to move, then I looked for a different opportunity. And I, and I went to work for a consulting business. And that was kind of one step towards being an entrepreneur. I, I worked quite... Uh, you know, independently with a group of farmers and help them with their marketing needs. I had support of some very good market analysts and and help in that. So that gave me a gave me a glimpse into you know being an entrepreneur and running my own business. And I think all the while I knew that you know I did I was wired that way. It's there is some of that on either side of my family. And it just takes time to, you know, nurture and be cultivated in, in everybody. And, and so uh, after about five years of just under five years with, with that company, I uh, decided with a friend of mine that we'd put a truck on the road and see what happened. And that was the, that was the winter of, 13, 14, when we did that. Okay. And as we did, we bought a truck and grain trailer, and I had my CDLs or 
class one. Here we go, depending on which side of the border you're from. Sure. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> yep. And uh, I jumped in that truck and off we went. Um, yeah, that's that, that's kind of the meandering path to the grain business. So it started me. as a trucking business primarily, and I think you still do that. But are, what what about what else you've got going on there today? That's right. So at the at that time, I was and my and my dream has always been to own my own grain business, grain trading business. And, but I knew at the time, or I felt at the time, and I still feel that it's important to be able to control some of your own logistics. And, and in my situation and in my market, it's trucks. And so my feeling was we, need to get a truck or two on the road so that we can do a better job of servicing these farmers that I'm going to eventually call and try to buy their grain. So that's how E2 trucking was started. And, and um, yeah, today E2 is uh, 25 or so trucks. All of our businesses cross border. Uh, so we're pulling 40 foot tandem axle hopper bottom trailers up and down I-29 and 94 in the upper Midwest and a little further south in some cases, but the vast majority of our business were bouncing around in the north half of the Midwest and back into Manitoba. What sort of commodities are you handling up there? Um, so on the trucking, on the trucking side of the business, and so the two businesses operate very separate, very separately from each other. There's actually very little uh crossover between the two so e2 is just a commercial hauler really uh anything bulk if you can pour it in and pour it out we'll haul it but uh, most of it is uh feed ingredients uh meals uh dried distillers uh oats wheat um some uh oat groats some canola meal um, fertilizer coming out of Minneapolis back into Manitoba or, uh, or fertilizer coming out of Northwest Iowa back into Manitoba. That's probably the, the, the bulk of what we're hauling in either direction. What about in the grain business then? The Red River Grain is uh, currently we're at 700,000 bushels of space and uh, uh, GSI top dry uh, grain dryer so we can dry corn in the fall. That's our main main thing. Um, and we're handling corn, soybeans, and oats, you know, three futures traded crops that mm -hmm. I can basis trade here in, in our market. The The big emphasis is on harvest delivered corn soybeans and oats but corn is our is our biggest one by far you buy that in manitoba and send it to north dakota or is that more of the trucking business does that kind of thing um so no the manitoba is a corn deficit market yep. so yeah, yeah. manitoba corn stays in manitoba uh and we bring up a fair bit of corn from north dakota mm -hmm. um Sometimes Red River Grain is involved in that, and sometimes we're not. Currently, we don't have 
a big ownership of U.S. corn, uh, but that changes uh, depending on the time of year and and you know the size of the crop in either place. But um, so yeah, corn comes north. The vast majority of our ownership is Manitoba corn, and sales would all, again vast majority of them be made to you know the feed mills and ethanol plant here in Manitoba. Some corn goes west out of Manitoba, but we're not really involved in that in that market. It's all pretty local. And then uh, soybeans, kind of the same story. We export our beans in a real big hurry in this part of the world. So, um, you know, you buy your beans and then you sell them at harvest as fast as you can haul them. And uh, oats is a little bit of a different story. Oats tend to go south um to the processors in various parts in, of minnesota and wisconsin um but we do have actually a, an oatmeal next door that uh, we do some business with too so um that one's not as cut and dried about what direction they're going in makes sense is that the grain setup is that something you guys built uh, yeah. on a green field somewhere or do you buy that, some space and add yeah. to it or how'd that go? No, we, uh, we bought a, <laughs> we bought a shop that had four acres of grass around it and we've been, uh, tearing up the grass and building bins. Uh, since then, I think our first bin was built in 2016 or 17. I'm not sure about the year, but, uh, the last two summers have been uh, bigger, bigger builds for us each each year. So we're relatively new to having our own space and learning how to trade that space and all the tricks that come with that. Is it fair to say that the the need for that service is relatively new in Manitoba? I'm just thinking about really the just in the time I've been in the business since the mid '90s. You know, we've seen Kansas, for example and Colorado to a great extent turned from wheat growing areas into significant corn growing areas. And then we've seen the Dakotas, and I think this is true of Manitoba as well, move from wheat and small grains into corn and soybeans. So is, is it uh, is it relatively new, do you think, for your part of the world to need bin setups and harvest capacity yeah. and all that sort of thing? Yeah, it is. That's, that's really how I, you know, backed into this business was identifying what I thought a need locally was for just storage and drying. And uh, that's what led me to a fateful meeting with someone that uh, introduced me to a new way of doing, of trading grain. And um, so, you know, it was just me identifying that need in particular in the area for, for space and drying and, and, you know, all the local farms that do grow corn most of them would like to grow more corn, but they're hesitant about spending a million dollars on, you know, a dryer and a few bins and I don't blame them. So sure. um, that's really where that, where that came from. And um, yeah, I'm thankful that uh, I kind of learned how to trade grain before we built, we built much because if I had built it and then had to learn that you know, there's been parts of the process that were painful as it was, but, that would have been a lot more painful. 
what was the, uh, you can tell me if you'd rather not talk about this. I, I don't have any particular uh, reason to think you wouldn't, but what, what was the sequence of events that led to you becoming the sole owner of this business? Um, yeah, so we, myself and, and a childhood friend uh, started it. And um, over the last couple of years, I had, I had just had this feeling that, you know, um, it's, I think it comes to, down to responsibility. Um, I, I heard a lot growing up about being responsible, and I can thank my father for that, and, and I do that earnestly. I'm very thankful for that. Um, so I, it's something I think about. And over the last couple of years, I, I, we, have, we have a good partnership, um, but I, I felt responsible for that partnership. And, you know, I, I hit 40 uh, a year ago or so. And uh, all of a sudden, when you're 40 years old, you start thinking about things a little differently and, and uh, thinking about the future and, and uh, you know, what, what it's going to look like. And, and there was something about that that made me realize, you know, I'm along with feeling responsible for this partnership that, you know, I got into it and I did not want the getting out of it to become someone else's responsibility. Mm. And that wasn't due to anything other than that. You know, like I say, we had a good partnership and a good relationship and I am very thankful that that's still true today. But um, there was just something about that, that, you know, this partnership was something that I had got into and I, and I felt, you know, over a couple of years strongly that it, I needed to take the responsibility of getting out of it too, and not just leave it and let it be someone else's problem. So, um, you know, we had, had the conversation and, uh, and over the course of about a year, um, we're to the point now where we're going to, close the deal on that and, and carry on. And I think um, we had this conversation a month ago or so about, you know, what were some of the, some of the cool things that we accomplished. And to me, the, the coolest thing is that we did what we did and we went through, you know, a share purchase, you know, buying out one of us, buying out the other and our relationship is intact. And <clears throat> I, I think that's a very uh, scarce story. Many of them don't end like that. And that's, I have to give him a whole bunch of credit for that. And um, I'd like to think it goes both ways, but um, I think that that is probably the, the uh, single biggest uh, accomplishment uh, that we have. And, and I think we're both looking forward to, you know, uh, carrying on just as friends and being each other's biggest fan in whatever sort of venture we're involved in. Wow. That's a, yeah. I say you're right. That's a, that's an incredible story. And just from observing, I mean, I've, I've been a part of a business succession program myself and, and there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emotion and a lot of responsibility and a lot of mutual concern, a lot of everything that goes into that. But I, yeah. I do think because it can be so difficult, um, maybe the default approach is just to to leave it alone until it becomes 
yeah. uh, an emergency or someone else's problem. As you yeah, got into your point of, of letting it be your responsibility and some, instead of someone else's, that, that's a uh, a tremendous thing. And, I, and I, I'm going to guess there are minimum of people in their 40s who are, who are thinking this way, I guess, if I'm just based on, again, my own observation and experience. Yeah, yeah. it could be. I, I, it's, I can't speak for other people, but I sure. have realized the, you know, I, I am, I have realized through this process that, you know, I am wired to be uh, very independent and I'm very, very much an entrepreneur. And if I wasn't very much both of those things, I would have never been able to, you know, have that conversation and, and see this through. It's been a, uh, you know, it, it hasn't been the, uh, a hard uh, thing to do from a relationship perspective, but it's still been a very stressful thing. That's sure. kind of a, <laughs> it's hard to explain that, but uh, like I say, the, the relationship is still good and, the, and there's a lot of mutual respect, but it's still been probably the hardest thing I've ever done and um, in business. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, if I wasn't, kind of wired the way I am there's no way that I would have seen it through so again uh, just just generalizing from my own experience and and um, observation of things especially as we've focused here on on helping people or getting people together to talk about succession planning and business transition and so on uh, the fact that it's a good thing to do and the fact that you can do it in a healthy way and in a way where everyone's values are aligned and, and people are working together for each other's mutual benefit doesn't make it less hard. No. <laughs> it's it's no. still, it's still a difficult thing with some uncomfortable conversations and mm -hmm. uh, not bad ones, not even not negative ones, just uncomfortable. No. And, you know, some, some uh, natural tension and uh, it's, it's good. And it's also difficult. I think that's, a, I think you said it very well. Right. And, you know, and I, and I think it's something that, that a lot of people face that are in business and you know i i would say from from my experience have the conversation that there it's going to be probably that conversation you fear more than anything else but you know just having the conversation and and laying you know those feelings and those desires bare if they are people that you've worked with and supported for a long time, pretty good chance they're going to respect those things and you can have a, have a conversation. And like you say, it's not all easy, not at all. But if there's mutual respect there uh, that you've earned over time and years, then uh, you've got a better foundation than, than really anything. And have the conversation and, and keep those lines of communication open. But that is a challenge. It's, it's, probably in a lot of people's case it's the hardest thing they've ever done and for a lot of these people they've done a lot of hard things yeah yeah well said well said so where do you hope uh things go from here you you're you're settling that part of it and you're owning this business moving forward i, I think you have several children or is, is that is it something that you're interested in passing on to them or what do, what do you think happens just in i guess two questions the first question is the operations of the business how do you see that expanding and growing and then longer term? What, what do you, what do you think happens when it's time right. for you to be done doing it? Yeah. Um, so the operations of the business, that's a, 
that's a very easy one to answer. We're going to keep doing what we're doing um, <laughs> and not really make any changes to that that I can foresee. Um, and just that is a challenge for someone <laughs> like me, easily distracted by new opportunities. Um, but I recognize that in myself and I've got people around me that also recognize that and, and they help me with <laughs> that problem. But um, so we're not going to do, I don't see us doing anything differently. We're going to keep uh, hauling bulk commodities north and south and uh, taking care of customers on the freight side. And then we're going to keep trying to buy more grain from the local farmers and, and give them a level of service that they simply have not had in the past and, and bank on that um, and the growth that I know will come from that. As far as, you know, further in the future, I have no idea. And that's, I've, I've never been more comfortable with that. Um, <laughs> I do. Yeah, you're right. There, there are six children, mm -hmm. uh, three boys and three girls uh, from five to 16. And um, I would say that each year that I've been running my own business, so we're, we're now into our 10th year, I would say with each year that we've been doing this, I am motivated less by the idea of one of my kids or my kids being involved in the business. When we started, I would have said, I would have, I was quite motivated by that idea. I liked that idea, mm -hmm. but I had no idea how hard it is. And um, as a result, um, boy, those kids, they get older and you love them more and more. And you realize the weight that a business, you know, brings. And I realize that if, if one or more of them is wired to do it, then I, it'd be best for me not to stand in their way, but I'm not going to incentivize it yeah, at all. Um, that needs to be entirely their decision. And, and uh, for now, you know, if they want to help out, that's great, but there's no, there's no uh, expectation on my part or, or my wife's part for any of them to be involved. But, you know, the reality is that one of them might be, and, and we need to start planning for that uh, eventuality so that it can happen. But uh, I'm not, I have no preconceived ideas. And, and it might be that, you know, one of our employees' kids or some kid in town is better suited for the job. And that's the person I want to have <laughs> doing the job. I, I've seen too many people. And I think those of us that grew up in, in small farming communities, we have this one thing in common. And, and that is seeing people that are born into an expectation and an expected role, and they are not suited for it. And it's, it's very hard for that person to have, you know, live a fulfilling and happy life if they're doing something out of expectation rather than it being, it being something they're passionate about. And I, I will not do that to one of my children. I, I don't want that for them or for anybody else for that matter. I want the right person in the right seat. And that extends to 
my own kids. Reminds me of uh, something that I've, I heard a pastor of ours say years ago about going into the ministry. And he, it was, I'm going to paraphrase here, but the quote was something like if a young person came to him and said they, they thought they wanted to be a pastor, he would say, my advice to you is try as hard as you can not to be one. <laughs> you, you try, if you run as hard as you can the other way and you, and you can't not be one, then, then maybe it's for you, but otherwise yeah. uh, you should, yeah. you should try very hard to not be a pastor. <laughs> but, yeah. That's, and these it's, I am, I've been amazed by this in the last year. You know, it feels like yesterday that my grandpa was doing his best to talk me out of wanting to be a farmer and wanting to be involved in agriculture. Mm. And, you know, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. You know, I was wired <laughs> for, for that. Yeah. Um, and, and he, yeah, he tried to talk me out of it, but at the same time, I know he was as proud as could be about my interest in those things. And, and he cultivated that, but, you know, here I am on the cusp of kind of, well, I'm not going to talk anybody out of it. Mm. I don't think, or I hope not, but I, I just, I want to do everything I can to not get in the way of, of their interests, whatever those might be and their decisions. And, and then, uh, and, and another thing that I, I see as an extension of this is just the organization within the business. And, you know, there are people that are responsible for, uh, responsible for various sections of the business. And I would say, that some of these things when the time comes it's it's up to those people to decide if whether it be my kid or somebody else's kid or or you know somebody that walks in and wants a job they are going to going to decide what that person is well suited for and that's been a liberating thing because I I don't want the weight of having to make that decision especially if it's one of my kids involved um i'm biased i know that um, <laughs> sure but so for that reason I, I i would rather disqualify myself from some of that you know day-to-day -day operational who's suited for what kind of a thing mm. um and now that we have you know we have people that do those things and they do them a lot better than i could i'm happy to stay out of the way and and accept their um, opinion and estimation of whatever it is when that happens. Sounds like a pretty reasonable approach to me. Speaking of, speaking of things that are uh, reasonable and unreasonable, uh, something I've observed about you in the time that I've known you is that you are not at all afraid to move around and go long distances to to learn the things you think you need to learn. And and um, an example that that jumps out at me is, I don't know if this was four or five years ago now, but you went down to Eastern Iowa and just spent a day or two, I think with, with Marilyn and the crew there at Couch and Grain. That's just looking at my wall map today. I mean, from Altona, Manitoba to Edgewood, Iowa is not a short distance <laughs> to just go no, hang around, not. hang around in a grain elevator. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there again, that's back to those mentors and influences that I had as a kid. Um, I, my grandparents in particular, they, if they had a chance to go somewhere, they, they went and uh, they took myself and, and my sister. 
Um, one summer we went to Prince Edward Island and the next summer we went to Vancouver Island. So we saw <laughs> both coasts. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was like at an extremely formative point in my youth when we did that. I was probably 12 and 13 or something like that. And, and we drove and, uh, and we talked to people where we stopped and, and uh, it was just, uh, to me, that was normal. <laughs> it's not to a lot of people and i'm so thankful for that that uh you know now that i found something that i i recognized as very interesting to me and something i was very passionate about the grain business and and basis trading and running and building an elevator and then here's this network of people that were just so incredibly hospitable and uh yeah um for me to jump in the pickup and drive uh, 12 14 hours that no problem no problem with that but uh yeah Marilyn and I watched the Super Bowl Sunday evening and uh and then I spent the next couple of days just watching how uh, Kelch and Grain ticked and you know I I can say that about man probably close to 10 places where they've just taken me in and and showed me how it worked and that that is by far the most valuable thing uh of the last 10 years easily wow so does does that repeat in your personal life do you do all eight of you get in the van and and uh, drive 14 hours on vacation or how does that work you know, we did just recently, yes. <laughs> but uh, it, that hasn't been the norm. No, okay. when there's uh, when there's six young young kids, you tend to stay home. So maybe this was an outlet for me. Actually, <laughs> this is this is my form of therapy. Um, but uh, you know, we we have recently, like I said, they're they're six to sixteen. So. I, both Katie and I have recognized that, you know, this is the sweet spot right here for us mm -hmm. to put on some miles and see some country and have some experiences. So uh, earlier this month, we uh, spent a little bit of time in Banff and I love to ski and I haven't done much of it the last 15 years. So I was able to take the oldest four skiing at Lake Louise. And that was, that was very cool to experience that with your own kids. Oh yeah. So yeah, we've we've started to put on some miles, and, and they are up for it, and I love to see that. I, I I've graduated. I don't know if it graduated is the right word, but I anyway, I've married this lady who doesn't really like long road trips. So we've we've flown some places on vacation, and, and you certainly can cover more ground. There's a lot to yeah. be said for it. But I, when I was a kid, it was there were four of us: my sister and myself, and our parents. Uh, we drove everywhere. Everywhere we went, we drove there. And there's, you know, I, I'm sure I'm romanticizing it a little bit, a little bit, but but I really do have pretty fond memories of getting in the car and driving 20 hours to get somewhere. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think for me that's that's a big part of why I own a trucking company today. You know, I mm. would uh, we would go on these road trips, and my grandma was a teacher, and uh, you know, born educator and uh, my grandpa was the most patient man and my grandpa loved to drive and uh i was the map reader so evan you're in the front seat and you're reading the map and 
we'll go where you tell us to go, you know. And and I remember well one one <laughs> dark night in Albany, New York, and I said to my grandpa, "Are we lost?" <laughs> said, nope, we just don't know where we are. <laughs> that was the oh man. Uh, I think back and think, you know, if I was in that position, my reply probably wouldn't have been so relaxed. But uh, yeah, those those are the kinds of influences that I have, and and that's probably why um, I uh, watch for a truck that doesn't have a driver and a load that needs to go. And I love to volunteer myself, although <laughs> with the other responsibilities, it's only once a year that that actually happens. But when it does. Oh, I love it. Incredible. Um, wow. That's time is, is, uh, just whipping right by here. And I think we'd like to do this for three more hours, but I don't know if anybody would listen to us if, yeah. if we did, Poor people. But, but I do, uh, I do have some, some, uh, sort of rapid fire questions for you to, to help us round this thing out. The first one is pretty simple. I'm, I'm almost certain that it was you who introduced me to, a term I'd never heard before about a game I had heard of before, and that is the term shinny. And what can you tell me about that? Well, shinny, man, you've uh, you're touching on all the all the passionate things in my life. Uh, all right. Shinny is pickup hockey. Um, <clears throat> so in in my life, shinny has been played on an outdoor rink in a little town two miles north of where I live about 300 people in that town, but there's this beautiful outdoor rink that's uh, well served by a volunteer board. And every night uh, the lights go on at 6.30 and they stay on till 10 o'clock and there's a nice warming shack. But anyway, about eight o'clock comes time where the, the little kids have to leave the ice and now it's time for the bigger kids to play hockey. And you throw all your sticks in a pile at the middle of the ice and then you find one of the younger kids who doesn't know whose stick belongs to who. And that person kneels down beside the pile of sticks, close their eyes and grabs one stick after the next and throws them to the opposite end of the rink. And that's how you make your teams and you throw a puck on the ice and you play hockey. And uh, that is probably uh, shinny in its purest sense. Um, and that's that's how I grew up playing a game that I love. And uh, there's there's an interesting aspect. I think an important aspect to Shinny is that it's it's all uh, age levels. So there might be some adults and teenagers, and maybe then a couple, you know, preteens or close to teens. And there's a certain justice that is uh, <laughs> executed. By virtue of the <laughs> the range in ages, you, yep, you yep. you're a 15 year old hotshot, and then all of a sudden, bang! Somebody bigger and stronger and faster than you comes along, and you get put in your place, and it's a very healthy thing. And I can say that because I was on the receiving end of that a few times. So I suppose um, it could go both ways. Huh? Maybe, maybe you're yes, a, maybe you're absolutely. a 20 28 year old former hockey star, and the, the 17 year old comes and shows you what's up sometimes. <laughs> absolutely, yes. Uh, I, I just didn't want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's, that is yeah. shinny. It's, it's outdoor hockey in its purest sense. Beautiful. That's a, I, I knew we've talked about it in brief before, but anyway, the, um, uh, 
I played a lot of basketball in my younger days, some organized and some not, but I, I very similar thing is uh, some of these indoor gyms or even at the park, but indoor gym, a lot of times, especially if it's, you know, a, whatever LA fitness or something that just have a piece or the YMCA have, have a notebook hanging on the wall and you just write your name down. And when the game's over, when the previous game's over, the next 10 people in whatever order their names are down are the next teams. And it's very democratic and mixture. And you get all sorts of things, you know, you can't, you're not playing with your favorites. You're playing with who's ever there. And there's, you learn a lot about the game doing that. Yep. And, and about the people you're playing with. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. All right. This, this may, uh, this may have answered my other question, but what do you do? Obviously you've got seven people at home that need some of your attention. You've got a little mm-hmm. shinny. What, what, what else occupies your time when you're not running the business? Um, yeah, that's a good one. And yeah, in, in winter it's, uh, it's, uh, go home and have supper and then, uh, you know, supper's not over and the question comes, can we go to the rink? Can we go to the rink? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, then you go from there. Um, what else do we do? Um, you know, I, I like to read. Um, I'll read just about anything, but for me, it's uh, biographies, autobiographies, um, especially people that were involved in business in one sense. Um, I, I like to read my Bible. And mm-hmm. if there's one thing that I wish I had more time for, it's just reading in general. Um, Maybe that time will come, but uh, I haven't found it yet. Um, There's a, there's a lot of outside activity with young kids and living on an acreage. It's, you know, uh, out you go. And uh, we, we do a lot of our heating with a wood stove. So we cut wood. Um, Yeah. Like I say, I love to ski, but we're, (laughs) we're 14 hours from the mountains. So uh, that hasn't happened too much the last few years, but it, it's mostly just family time. And, and a lot of it would be unstructured, I guess. And I appreciate that. Sure. What's someplace you've been that you think everyone should go if they get the chance? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So you, you've asked the kind of question that, is very hard for me to answer and that is a you know what's your favorite mm-hmm. um i i get that you know i get this from the kids all the time what's your favorite you name it and i don't have it i don't have favorites um i i've been a lot of places in north america um the canadian rockies are just tremendous i mean we were just there so that's fresh in my mind but I'm, I'm going to be a bit of a homeboy and say the prairies. Mm. Um, it's a destination that's probably not high on a lot of people's list, but um, any time of year, there is a type of beauty on the prairies that is, is um, unique to this place. Um, whether it's, uh, you know, a blizzard, not a lot of people. I've experienced something like a blizzard on the prairies uh, or, you know, the summer and, and the, the wheat waving in the wind or, you know, just the length of our days in the summertime. Um, that's a new one for a lot of people that haven't been here. 
Um, yeah, I, I think it's it would probably be the prairies. And another reason I can't answer that one is just because I think I, I see and appreciate the intricacies everywhere I go. But the Midwest and the prairies, that would be that'd be where I'd like people to be able to come and see and appreciate. Yeah, underrated destination for sure. Yep. <clears throat> what what was something uh, in the grain business or trucking business or business in general that a change that you were afraid of but turned out to be okay? Hmm. Afraid of. Um, you know, I think it, that's a people one. Uh, hmm. We've had we've had some. You know, when you have people sometimes people go and um we've had a couple situations where people that held responsible positions within the company took a different job and um you know we still have good relationships with those people and, and uh in at least one of those cases the you know we're doing business back and forth and and have a good friendship but when it happened that was scary to me and um there's a situation where i have no doubt in my mind that you know uh god provided what we needed to fill that role and and we carried on uh with much less of a uh you know disruption than i was anticipating uh so it, it would it would definitely be on the people side of things that's awesome. I've I've been thinking a lot about building teams and what all that means and maybe what it doesn't mean. And of course, you need people fulfilling roles and, and people doing things that they're good at and not everyone doing the same thing. But right. also, there's a lot to be said for building the kind of team where losing any member doesn't doesn't kill what's going on. That's the, right. That's right. the dream. And being, right. Yes. And being OK with the idea that you know, we're all replaceable. And uh, that that's something I've had to come to grips with. And I think it's probably a challenge for a lot of people that are, you know, entrepreneurially wired. We think that we do this in a way that nobody else can. And, and that's a, that's a dangerous idea. So, yeah, just, I think, I think that uh, those experiences of having people go elsewhere and realizing you know what there there's other people out there that can do these jobs and we're going to help and support the people that are going and the people that are coming and maintain the relationships and carry on hard on the ego to to assume that you as the owner founder of the business uh, are replaceable but it's it's very healthy yes. <laughs> if you can get there it's very yep. It's a hard thing to think. I mean, I'm, I guess I, I'm not the founder of this business, but uh, you know, I, I think, like you said, there's a there's a something in all of us, or or at least in those of us who who run a business in some sense or help run a business that feels like we're doing something special. That's, that's probably truth to that. And also, there's sure. a lot of truth that we we ought to be making ourselves replaceable. Absolutely, that's the that for me has been a uh, ongoing two-year process and it's going to keep on going for a while but that's that's exactly what i want to accomplish the, the ego 
does not die easily, but it needs oh. to die. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> All right. Last question. If, if you were talking to yourself 20 years ago, or 20 or 21 year old Evan, what, what advice do you have for that guy? Hmm. <laughs> Boy, how personal do you want to get? <laughs> That's totally up to um, you. Yeah. <clears throat> I think it would be to have paid more attention to the influences that I had when I was young. Like, you know, I've I've mentioned them and it's probably obvious that I I think highly of them. Uh but for the most part there was a level of faith in in all of their lives that I probably as a young person just took for granted and didn't realize how important that was as you get older. And yeah, if I could, I could go back 20 years, it would, I would say, stop and think about that. Think about things that you've seen and heard and, and are taking for granted and the importance of them. And, and those would be, things of faith and um and just the life that's associated with them and if you can enter into those things they'll serve you so well and keep you from a lot of uh trying situations i think that would be it well, from that, from the outside looking in, I would, I would guess that you did a better job of following that advice than you give yourself credit for. <laughs> but I suppose you could always, there's always room for improvement. I guess let's say that. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Well, Evan, I can't thank you enough. This is a, a an amazing conversation. I'm glad you were able to make the time to talk to me, and we'll, we're going to get this out for other people to enjoy real soon. Awesome. Thank you, Phil, and it's been a privilege. Thank you. Take care. You too.